generative AI takes the center stage. But is your enterprise still watching from the sidelines? Come on in, let's fix that. This is Not Another Bot, the Generative AI Show, where we unpack and help you understand the rapidly evolving space of conversational experiences and the technology behind it all. Here is your host, TJ. Hello and welcome to Not Another Bot, the Generative AI Show. I'm your host, TJ, and joining me today is David, who has been instrumental in shaping how businesses and enterprises perceive and leverage artificial intelligence, a very well-known name in the industry. Known for his deep understanding of AI's multifaceted impacts and potential, David's invaluable contributions have significantly influenced the growth trajectory of numerous organizations worldwide. His professional journey has been a fascinating blend of technical prowess and executive leadership. Currently, he is the global product lead at Google and the founder and general partner at Data Power Ventures. What truly sets David apart is his visionary perspective and thought leadership. He's a forward thinker who understands not just the technical facets of AI, but also its ethical implications and societal impacts, critically important in today's day and time. He navigates the complexity of this field with a clarity of thought and a commitment to making technology accessible, equitable, and fair. Welcome, David, and I can't tell you how excited to have you here on the show. Thanks, TJ. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Well, let's get started. So, David, could you start by telling us about your journey? Like, I'm intrigued, frankly, with just looking at the amount of things you have done, the voice you are in the industry, the things you have been doing to make, you know, AI adoption and journey so easier for enterprises and businesses. And from studying finance, information systems, and statistics to becoming the global product leader at Google and a founder at Data Power Ventures, what were some pivotal decisions or experiences that led you to your current position today? Well, I really appreciate everything you've shared, TJ. And as we know, the data industry is always evolving. And... For myself, I got involved just around the 2010 time period, actually working in insurance and doing actuarial science work. And very early back then, our work was setting the right guardrails, setting the right systems in place when pricing insurance and developing systems that you put the consumer's mind first, that you're ensuring that you're building responsible systems. Now, these systems were built on-premise. They were built on IBM mainframes. They had different Visual Basic scripts. They look very different than today's AI-first systems with Python being built responsibly with different interfaces and different cloud environments. But it got me thinking the possibilities of where the data industry was headed, and that led this whole journey the past 10-plus years where I worked at five startups in the data space, first to early stage ones, building early versions of Netflix and Snapchat, and then to startups where we did a whole ton of data science consulting, both on-prem and cloud for Fortune 500 and SMBs on how to build data science workflows, on how to think about end-to-end solutions so that companies could accelerate their growth and unlock the power of their data. During that journey in startups, I launched Data Power Ventures to better accelerate the data economy by looking at these treasure troves of data sets and developer tools and apply insights through the machine learning and AI capabilities. And that journey has continued to accelerate. Today, we have over 25 portfolio companies. And as we all know, the space is continuing to heat up. Today, it seems that AI is on everyone's mind. And 
beyond being involved in the venture capital space. Just about a year ago, I joined Google. I'm focused on their data products, specifically creating insights, supporting, understanding all about the data, ML, and AI landscape. I do a lot of cross-product initiatives where we're working with a variety of models, variety of data sets, variety of testing to build inclusive and to build accessible systems like you commented at the onset. So it's definitely a journey that doesn't stop. And I think that the key to our conversation today will be around these ethical implications. I've always been a big proponent, inclusivity. And that's something that we're starting to see in the forefront today. A lot of thought leaders, especially in the EU and others, are beginning to bring this top of mind. Right. So, well, I think one thing you just called out is the data science aspect of it. And given your journey, would love to know what first you sort of sparked your interest in data science and how did that evolve into a focus on fairness and AI first product or being particularly AI aspect of the things. Can you share like your particular motivation or maybe a story that inspired you to kind of go behind you know, ethical AI and fairness and AI first products? So for me, my passion has always been around mathematics. I'm one of those rare cases of both a product and VC leader who believes that everything starts with math. I love Yann LeClune for a lot of his focus on getting back to the basics. And for me, ever since middle school, high school, I did these national and international math competitions. Back then, you would actually do calculations by hand or with these TI-84 calculators. And it was so fascinating that before we called it data science, you would insert a new data point and then see how a linear regression would drift based on the impact of that one data point. Little do we know back then that this was called model drift. And this is about the explainability of models that today is being uncovered by tons of platforms, both at the big three cloud and a variety of startups where trying to uncover, trying to be responsible about data. Once I moved on from those days, a lot of the work started, of course, with the classic spreadsheets that we'd see in you know, Google Sheets and other platforms and then went into the more robust systems of working with SQL and working with Python and R and these programming languages that just the sheer momentum of being there during the evolution of the Jupyter Notebook, of seeing now where any developer could unlock a linear regression or more powerful neural network on their local machine in a notebook and see those results became quite powerful. And that journey has only continued. It was just two, three years ago that we could run our own image nets or convolution nets on our own notebook and see right there if something is a dog or a cat. Of course, fast forward through the GPT-powered craze of 2023, we're now looking at much broader use cases, which expand across all sets of both enterprise and consumer businesses. Lovely. And I think my first interaction with machine learning uh, while learning through uh, the process was with R. <laughs> so, and Python's, it's just amazing, you know, how you explain the whole thing and the evolution of, you know, the notebooks from there. So totally, I mean, linear regression, boosted decision trees, you know, those are like, we kind of, you know, build those or you know, run those with R and integration to, let's say, some of the coding tools and SQL Server. I'm glad that you called it out. My SQL Server days, R integration is where it came very close to learning it. So thanks for <laughs> talking about that for sure. 
So now that we, we know a little bit more about your thought process around data science and how you kind of came closer to ethical AI and why you care about it, could you explain the concept of fairness in AI-first products? And why is it so critical today with the means of maybe you know defining some measures in this context, some examples of how bias in AI can impact real-world outcomes, and also some common sources of bias in AI today, like just your thought process around that. Yeah, so I think when you think about any automated product, the goal of automation is to create things that are better, faster for society. And when you're creating AI-first products, these are often products that require a lot of nuance to make a decision. The early decision models were the ones that perhaps you and I would apply for a credit card or a home mortgage online and then get an instant result. You've been approved or we need extra time to process your results. Those were models, but they often seemed very opaque and dark and it wasn't clear what all the inputs and criteria were. And that I think is what spawned a lot of action from policymakers in the States and Europe and abroad to say, it's great that we have automation. It's great that we're building better, faster systems, but are they truly better, faster? We need to unlock these inputs because as a society, we have the responsibility to the user to provide systems that are fair, where the user understands the inputs, where they're given the support and feedback to know why a decision was made. And those decisions go beyond this case of getting approved for a credit card or a mortgage and now seem to be pervasive all throughout society. There's a lot of startups today that work with computer vision to detect your face, anything from unlocking a phone to at the airport being admitted or not admitted to go through an entry point. Perhaps your visa expired, and that can now be done through automation with AI. But what if your face is mistaken as someone else's face, and you're not admitted? You see here what happens is we're coming into this conundrum of fairness with AI, that often true, the benefit of the doubt is that developers are building with the best intent. I don't think developers are saying, let's build it so someone gets rejected and doesn't get admitted. The challenge with these systems is getting it right for 90% doesn't work. Getting it right for 95% doesn't work. You need to get 99 plus percentage right and these edge cases take a lot of data to identify, and it takes that data to be built up over time. That's why I actually think to build fairness in AI, it starts with large data sets. It doesn't matter in the long run how large your model is. If this foundation model is, as we've seen many this year, some of them have been hundreds of billions of parameters. Some of them have been just about 10 or 20 billion. You don't necessarily need incredibly complex compute and hypertuning, but if you can get a very specific and broad data set, that's the power to bring in more fairness to your models. Yeah, I think that's one thing, you know, as we're kind of moving towards the, the large language model, especially in our domain even more, we certainly have seen how to kind of make a better one. And everybody is trying to do that with a smaller model size. 
less parameters and reducing hallucination and accuracy for sure. One thing that's coming to my mind though is how are some of the common challenges which businesses face today or maybe facing with you know fairness and AI products? How do they overcome these hurdles today? Like looks like it's a, even though the adoption could be exponential, but then there's this massive concern around the fairness in the IFS products or the hallucinations or the biases. And how do you manage trade-offs between you know different fairness metrics? First, I think it's important to think about where are these large language models or this generative landscape moving towards? It started with these foundation models just in the last couple years and now the last six months, right? We saw the evolution of BARD and BARD2 and Palm and MedPalm2 and ChatGPT2 3.54 among many other participants in the space. And a lot of the changes here was to enable flexibility for the data inputs. I think we're starting to move into a space much similar to the evolution of databases. Today, you and I both have you know, been involved in the database industry, and we know that there's you know, a few hundred big databases out there, cloud, on-prem. But originally, it started with maybe Oracle, right? And then it splintered off into these dozens and, and now hundreds of players. I think we're going to move into a similar direction with the models. We're going to have these big BARD and ChatGPT models that are going to get smaller as you know, everyone tries to figure out how to create them for specific use cases. And over the coming months and years, we'll move into a society where there's hundreds of these foundational models. I think we've started seeing some early data points that indicate that, for example, Bloomberg created their own version, Bloomberg GPT, based on their fixed income and equities data. Google created MedPalm 2 based on healthcare data, very specific. And I think we're going to see that across all scopes of the economy. Now, if you're a company, whether you're a large enterprise or an SMB, and you are considering, how do I bring generative technology into our products to offer to our customers while building something that is safe, responsible, and fair, I think there's two things to think about. Number one, what in your product or your offerings today, is there a gap that these generative products can enhance to make your product better or to offer additional value to your customers? So let's say your product today is a legal brief reading software. So maybe you're an enterprise company and you um, have software that you know, finds key phrases and key review pieces and dockets. And and all this is done through your, you know, fantastic technology using a variety of OCR and ML and AI techniques prior to the generative techniques. But now you're saying, how can we offer more? Well, perhaps, and as I'm speaking about this use case today, right, so I'm offering this free counsel, perhaps it's oh, let's take those dockets and then generate summaries based on the content or generate suggestions about decisions to make. Now, the challenge with generating anything not by a human is to not take it at face value as 100% 
true. And this is the early issues we're experiencing in the generative movement. There was a case in the early part of 2023 where there was a lawyer who was presenting a case to a judge and they just literally were presenting everything that the foundation model gave to them without even reviewing it. And it was, it was quite shocking. The judge actually scolded the lawyer and actually suggested to even disbar them for going so much that case. And so I think it requires a certain level of wisdom to work with these models, and it requires a collaboration between humans and machines. Even if fast forward a couple of years, these models reach perfection in whatever perfection is, there will be new edge cases. You do need oversight and support to ensure that they're having the right levels of trust and those guardrails. So I share that case. That's, I think, part one about how do you implement it or consider implementing it to your product. Part two is about, you mentioned TJ about all these metrics And as we know, in the data science world, there are dozens of different inputs that you can consider. You know, you could start with the basic accuracy, precision, recall, and standard metrics. But the challenge with your model is there's so many things it may get right and so many things it may get wrong. And it's to your benefit to actually track that data for each metric and over time see where that performance drifts, whether it improves or not, based on the new data inputs and the training techniques or technology that you use to get better results. You may not get tens across the board or 100% of everything. Maybe early on, one metric is 40% and another is 80%. I think, again, the goal is progress, not perfection. And as long as we're building these systems where it's humans and machines together, Together, then we're going to go in the right direction. Otherwise, when we choose to exclude a human, that's where we see the EU Commission and other bodies say, not so fast, we need to consider policy and the impact on society. I think the challenge with the pace of innovation with foundation models is they're both going to unlock opportunity, but they're also going to have a disruption curve. And there's early data showing that counter to the popular belief that all this AI is going to create more jobs, the short-term disruption is actually going to be quite painful. And we are seeing that across the board. One example is an education company. So this is public data. Maybe if you're someone who has children in college or you've gone through, perhaps You've been to some of these platforms in the past where you get study tips and recommendations. And this platform is actually called Chegg. Maybe you've gone there, you've looked at textbook, you've got reviews or feedback. Well, Chegg actually has a pretty healthy business, pretty predictable, cyclical customers coming in on the school cycles. Well, the early data showed that since these large models came out and offered these, you know, free tutoring ish services where someone could say, hey, is this the right solution to my math problem? And then the model says, oh, no, try fixing this, that Chegg's business went down year over year in 96%. And now Chegg is scrambling to create their own, you know, Chegg AI model, among other things. But so, of course, in the world of free capitalism, there's the opportunity for any business to be out there and support, though there is some long tail effects 
that we're not aware of, and that disruption will trickle down all across the global economy. In this example, thinking about Chegg, well, that's the one proof point that we see publicly. But what about all the private tutors and SAT and ACT companies and organizations that run a, a whole industry to support education success for high school and college admissions? It's too early to tell what that disruption looks like. And while some of that may be warranted, you may have learners who are excited to be self-disciplined and have their superpowered assistant to others, it might be too disruptive in the short term if we don't offer adequate opportunities to reskill, upskill, and expand new opportunities in society. So I think there's a lot to consider with these models. And I think for those reasons, I'm in support with the EU's policy. You know, they just came out towards the end of Q2 with their review on how transparent and fair foundation models are everywhere from the BARDs to the chat GPTs and others. And I think their scoring of all these dimensions is a step in the right direction. Awesome. Thanks for the insights there. I think now that we're talking more about bias in, in AI systems, and certainly it all comes from the data, the way we train it. So as we know, like the major source of bias in the AI system is training data. How do you approach the task of collecting and preparing unbiased data? And can you also talk about some of the pitfalls in data collection that can introduce bias and how to avoid them as you know enterprises take this journey? It's an established practice to an extent, but I think bias and then certainly getting outcomes off it is equally critical to consistently being discussed. And lastly, can you speak through the challenges of identifying and handling hidden biases in the data? So when we're thinking about data for models, collection is definitely one of the key elements that is all about getting new data. And constantly having those inputs are critical so you can refine or improve your model. If you don't have new data, right, you don't have a new source of water to drink from. And so it's critical to have that to improve your models. Now, when you're gathering a data set, depending on how questions are asked, can impact how that data is collected. It could be as simple as maybe you have an API is providing certain inputs. You know, this is from an iPhone or an Android device. This is from a web browser or a mobile app. By not collecting certain information, there's certain insights that you would not be able to surface in the first place. So it's important to collect those insights. But second, it's important to be responsible with collecting them. So I don't think data collection in itself is the biggest risk that we're seeing in the space, but it's more about training on the data that's collected and making sure that the right techniques for anonymizing certain information and keeping certain information private, I think that's an area that we need more focus on. You know, if an example of those app usage data provided information such as certain people's demographics, where people live, this can create problematic issues once the models are trained. One really well-known public case a couple years ago is with one of my favorite sports, running. So I do a lot of half marathons and marathons. I love to run. I love to track my running data. I love to see all the insights here. The leading running platform is known as Strava. So Strava is this app. And for those who run, right, you'll turn on the app and it'll track all your data. And it submits it to the platform. And then you could socially share it with others and then see certain insights on where it would recommend you to run if you're in a certain area. Well, 
What so happened is that when some people got to a certain area, it recommended a certain place to run, and they were curious because that wasn't the spot that was necessary nearby or accessible to most people. Well, it just so happened that that spot was a specific military base of the United States in an area that most people didn't know about that was classified. And you can see how not thinking about releasing this feature as a product manager, the unintended consequence was like, uh-oh, some of this data got out there and what if it got into certain hands? Now, what Strava did over time to solve for this um, I don't know if it's the full solution, but they did take down that feature. So the recommend they're left. But now when you share your running path with a friend, uh, they intentionally exclude the first quarter and the last quarter mile of however far you run so that if someone finds you in real time, you know, your privacy is secure. So I don't know. I think sometimes when these features are built, I'm always wondering, like, what's the use case that you're building this feature? Do you need it? Are you adding value? And I like that they've, you know, met the criticism and have provided somewhat of a solution, but there's a lot more to encounter there. And so this comes back to that whole point about how you consume your data into the model and what those outputs could be. Amazing. While you were speaking, this question kept coming to my mind, and we can go a little bit more technical too, and just for one of these questions. Now that talking about different methods to also reduce bias, I think the mitigation part of it, right? If you have bias, what do you do, right? So now we know there are some pre-processing, in-processing, post-processing methods which exist to reduce bias. First, I would love your thoughts and if you can elaborate a little bit on that. Second, some successful applications of post-processing methods, you know, whether it's calibration or something else. And just like the way you are giving examples, I love the examples, David, by the way, just the use case and, you know, taking example help such so much easier to understand. So any examples for processing methods, such as modifying the learning algorithm or the function itself and its effectiveness, any sort of knowledge sharing, which you may want to call out to maybe the data scientists or the people who are working day in, day out on even the data engineers, like processing and pre-processing and post-processing of the data to reduce bias, David. Yeah, so I think what's really fascinating today is when you think about the generative AI landscape, there's a variety of practitioners needed to make models available. And to be able to work with those, you need, for example, first, the data analysts who are collecting and nurturing that data to then pass it on to these data engineers, which are doing a lot of this pre-processing, ensuring that data is at a good level of data validation or data sanity. And that cleanliness is making sure, like, is the data complete? If you're collecting, for example, let's say we have another scenario where you're creating your own model to generate images, and perhaps these images are very specific. You're focused on generating objects in outer space. And so you're going to collect data. Well, how complete is that? Do the images that you see, first off, are they representative of the model you want to build? So perhaps you have an image of a dwarf galaxy, and then you have an image of actually a planet Earth toy being held by a toddler. So there's a consideration, right? Will the model know that that planet toy Earth is not actually in outer space? It may not. It requires that oversight. And there are tools you can use to generally identify real quickly, like, hey, is this 
yes, no in the first criteria, but it will require that additional human testing, human validation or in the loop. I think post-development of a tool, it's all about, again, getting it tested, getting it tried out, because there are going to be gaps based on your data. So you might say, generate a solar system. And if all the inputs weren't there before, these models will attempt to find the nearest prediction or find the nearest scenarios that are approximate. You know, really, when it comes down to it, today, the movement this generative AI movement, everyone's packing up into a pretty little package that here's this LLM or this model that can do X, Y, Z. But if we really drill it down to fundamental data science, we're really just looking at nearest objects. We're looking at these, you know, k-means or how is a point to another point in the whole collection of your data sets. And it's for this reason, right? It goes back to that scenario I mentioned at the onset of our episode today about what if I did that linear regression by hand and I added a new data point and then there's that drift or there's that shift in the model. That's exactly what happens when we insert new data points into building these foundation large language models. It's to the point that if you were a data science team managing a model for a company and you're collecting fresh data from the lake and suddenly 80% of the new data is of a completely different type of image than before. Suddenly, maybe on TikTok, it went viral, kids playing with planets Saturn and Jupiter, and all these images and videos start coming into your data set. You're going to start seeing perhaps this performance drift, this decreased performance, feedback from users. No, this isn't outer space. I don't want someone else's kid in my photo. So you can see here the narrative I'm describing that these models aren't truly sentient and they do require a lot of testing. I think one of my biggest cautions to companies that want to integrate generative features into their product, it's not launch it and it's done and it just lives autonomously forever. You will need software engineer, data scientist, perhaps a professional services company to help manage or software, right? To manage and support the end-to-end life cycle. Just like when you integrate an application with a database, you don't touch it, set it, and forget your database forever. Things start to go wrong. Software always toils. There will always be degradation and broken queries. The same is occurring today with these models and will continue to occur. So it's beneficial to think about that end-to-end system. Coming back to fairness metrics in AI-first products, could you discuss the role of fairness metrics in AI-first products and the challenges of choosing and implementing them, especially if you could talk through a situation where two fairness metrics can contradict each other and how you would handle it or probably some ideas of doing so? And second, how are they incorporated into the model training and evaluation process given they would need to be doing so given you know the the discussion we just had because it may impact the overall outcome so the challenge with fairness for a model is it depends on who your audience is or what the use cases you look at let's say for example you have one model and it's going to be some sort of text generation model for your company let's go back to the the example earlier of the Bloomberg GPT. So Bloomberg created this, you know, large language model called Bloomberg GPT that includes a treasure trove 
finance and equity data. And the purpose is, well, for those of us who know Bloomberg and the financial industry, they first got famous for these Bloomberg terminals where their developers could type shortcuts and code and find price action to make a trade and generate profitability, right, from Bloomberg as an organization or support other traders or hedge funds or quant shops. So could they have this Bloomberg GPT model where instead of just searching with a query, you could type into that search, Goog, and then get some recommendations based on things occurring in the news that day or other parameters. And this could be beneficial, especially if the data set's large and it's public and it's universal. There's a ton of information available on stock symbols in the Fortune 500. And so you would gain more insights here. And and perhaps the software engineers that are managing Bloomberg GPT are seeing that usage and the benefits. But what happens if we're looking for more obscure, over-the-counter symbols or penny stocks or reverse splits or some really nuanced cases, the data may be incomplete. And the data may actually be so incomplete that it could cause a poor decision-making choice from a trader. And without the right language to suggest that, you know, this is not financial advice, this is generated by a machine, this is here to support you as a data point, there's a chance that decisions might be made slower or decisions may be made that reduce profitability. And so when we're thinking about the metrics that are being captured, this will vary from organization to organization. It may be as straightforward as, you know, do we have an inclusive metric where we're not getting bug reports that we're seeing, you know, vulgar or profane or racist content. So that could actually be like a metric, you know, the number of bugs occurring monthly went from 20 to 10. Okay, looks like we're, we're doing better here, potentially. But could it be that um, developer productivity has sped up, right? Back to our case with the lawyer working on the legal briefing software. Could it be that now billables are up because the lawyer is able to work a little bit faster, they're able to get those summaries quicker, could be beneficial, but could they be making the wrong decision? Or could their insights actually be inaccurate? And so I think it's going to be critical, whichever organization you are, whether you're going to use an off-the-shelf tool, whether you're going to build a tool, buy a tool, you do want to determine what are those North Star metrics for your customer or your user before you implement the tool, and then start to track those and see if they're heading in that direction you want. Saving money, making money, customer success going up, bug reports, and there could be dozens of other variables that you choose. I think it's important, though, that we choose those metrics early on because you can't measure what you don't track. And otherwise, you're like, oh, I think it's going well. It looks like our revenue's up to the right. Yeah, but is that from the model or something else? Very rightly said. And I think one thing that comes to my mind on top of that is we're talking about the ethical considerations when designing and deploying, you know, fair AI first products. But also there is this consistent requirement from customers to have more accuracy, efficiency, privacy, you know, response times, you know, to their their queries. How do you see that balance coming together? You know, can, is it like is there a trade-off to try and maintain or uh, building fair AI pro- first products? or being more considering the ethical aspects of AI, do we have to have like some trade-off between accuracy, efficiency, response times, and privacy? 
So while from a product perspective, we always think of trade-offs from a user perspective, I think it's about managing expectations in the sense that the last six months, everyone now, everyone's mom, everyone's grandma, everyone's great-grandma knows about generative AI. It like took the world by storm, but it doesn't mean the software is perfect. It's not like you take out your Pixel phone or your iPhone and you marvel at that piece of hardware and software, how flawless it is. That when was the last time on your Google or Apple device an app crashed and your phone became unusable, like the blue screen of death we see from Windows machines? We don't see that too often anymore, but we're going to see a lot of early issues with the models. And I think because this industry is so nascent and evolving so rapidly, we need to be willing to give them time to improve and to know that this journey will be taking the next year to five years, depending on the models to get there. I think we do need oversight, of course, so we maintain that fairness, because if we don't, we're going to encounter issues like described about the earlier case of applying for a credit card or a home mortgage and not knowing Were you rejected because the model thought that you were an alien? Or was it because you had too much debt to, you know, income ratio? So it was taking a very measured approach there. So I think that's something to think about. And it's all of our responsibility to respect this opportunity. Unlike previous cycles of technology, which were quite theoretical in the AI space, it's quite pleasant to see this transition towards a preeminent technology that everyone can use and sign on to your search engine today on Google and get a generative response. I think it's the early days. And my general take over time is think about job descriptions in the last 20 years. They got to a point where everyone, whether you were a secretary or an executive, usually the job description said experience with spreadsheets, working with, you know, wrangling data, doing some basic insights, right? And like today in 2023, if you ask someone, hey, can you work with a spreadsheet? They're like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. I can type some data, do a formula. Well, I think that's the space we're going to move towards with these large language models. We're going to move to a space where there's a ton of products that you use. Maybe you use Adobe Firefly to generate images, and you're going to need to do these prompts. So instead of coding in a spreadsheet, you're going to write a prompt, you know, create an image of the solar system, and then you see that. Or maybe more advanced prompts, right? Create the image of the solar system in a panoramic view with HD macro lens. And so I think it's also to our benefit as a society that we're going to need to enable the user, respect the user to be able to successfully use these products. Whenever we've had issues in the past with software and hardware, what do you do as a software engineer? Do you blame it on the user? It's the user's fault. They didn't do it right. Come on, we built it right. We, we answered the requirements. I think it might be the UI, the UX, the experience, right? Something there, we have to go back and understand what broke, what didn't happen. And so we can ship these models, we can build these tools, but we have that responsibility to enable each and every one of our customers and users to succeed and thrive with them. And I think if we do that both from the data perspective on fairness the process of building and maintaining these models, and then ensuring that everyone's successful using the technology. While the short term remains unclear, 
a lot of ambiguity, a lot of change in this industry. I think in the coming years, we'll all have our own version of these super powered assistants that we'll be using to uh, accelerate different parts of our life. Well explained. Well, David, I'll take one last question for you. I think this is critical to land and it's been just amazing so far, the entire discussion. And this is probably the, the last question, which kind of brings everything together. One is, and it's purely like your prediction about how the concept of fairness in the first products might evolve in the next five years. I would have asked 10, but with the pace of innovation, I think, you know, five years makes sense. And particularly in light of technological advancements and evolving societal expectations and what implications this could have for businesses and why they should really care about what are things they could start doing now so that they don't have to redo things later on because everybody also wants to jump into the in this journey and the wave of generative AI and large language models. So we'd love to, you know, get your final thoughts on those, you know, before we sort of, you know, say goodbye today. So I think the way that we build a more humane future and improve fairness for models is through continual validation, continual testing, continual providing of that feedback. And it's an uncomfortable thing to do. As engineers, as users, we like to ship product and use product and just have it work. But we often don't want to provide that feedback if it's not comfortable. So I think it's going to require companies that are shipping generative products to make an easy experience for users to share their feedback and to make them know that you value that feedback and that that their trust and that their support for your product means everything. Because the only way to get products right to be fair, is to validate with these edge cases. And although for the purposes of the show, I keep mentioning them as edge cases, they're anything but edge cases. We've seen decisions this year in the court system where the Supreme Court knocked down affirmative action because they believe that's an edge case. But is that so? Millions of people would say no, right? That there's benefits to the world and society to level up the playing field, to bring fairness to everyone. And when I see um, humans on the court who are elevated to a position of authority to say affirmative action should be knocked down, but who are you to say that? Who says your legal judgment is above another lawyer? What would ChatGPT, what would Bard say to turning down affirmative action? They might say it's actually beneficial for society, for fairness and inclusion. So I think this framework where I'm thinking of using superpowered assistance and having inclusion in systems, it's going to be essential for us to get products right in the coming years. But the only way to do that is to take the approach that the EU is taking. We have to have policy first. We have to have openness and fairness for the models. Because if we don't, we're going to see the early blunders that we saw from ChatGPT, where a persona like Sydney came out that almost caused people to commit suicide. I mean, these are things that could have been completely prevented, but there was carelessness and recklessness from some users. And no organization is going to get it right in the short term, but it's having the commitment 
of leaders who take inclusive principles, accessible principles, and inclusion by design that will get us there in the coming years. But it's going to be a rocky road, and every model is going to be different. So the challenge is understanding that one model is not all of them. So when someone comes to love Adobe Firefly and says, you made for me this beautiful picture of the solar system, but when I used Midjourney, it didn't happen. Wow, generative AI tech must be bad. No, it's a different model, right? We need that feedback to understand what's going on. So it's definitely a journey. I'm excited for the road we're going to take. I can't wait for the future where all of us are going to be doing some prompt engineering ourselves and building, hopefully, a better and faster world. Amazing. I'll just leave right at that thought you just mentioned. I think that's perfect ending to this podcast episode for sure. Well, on that note, David, I just want to thank you for being here on the show. And I can't tell you how informative and deep these discussions were and so clear in terms of the fairness, you know, we want to bring in the AI products and why we should consider that first totally an experience and then learning for me as well. And I'm sure it's going to be for the audience. So I want to thank you so much for your time and hope to, you know, kind of bring, have you again, you know, to just discuss this further in some time when all of these adoption on the ethical side of the business for the AI gets even more mainstream further from here. So thanks for your time today. Beautiful. Thanks for having me, TJ. Thank you. How impactful was that episode? Not Another Bot, the Generative AI Show, is brought to you by Yellow.ai. To find out more about Yellow.ai and how you can transform your business with AI-powered automation, visit Y-E-L-L-O-W.ai. And then make sure to search for the Generative AI Show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Yellow.ai, thank you for listening.